You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I'm here with Rick Edelman. Rick, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Ash. Thanks. It's a pleasure to have you. Rick, you are currently the largest RIA in America. Is that right? Correct. By far. You've, uh, you've got uh, something like uh, $200 billion, uh, of assets under management. Correct. Uh, we have uh, 350 financial advisors uh, in 170 offices. <laughs> well, not anymore. Uh, but normally, through about 170 offices. Uh, we also are the largest workplace provider of advice in the country. We uh, serve about 150 of the Fortune 500, as well as thousands of small businesses around the country. All told, about 10 million workers around the U.S. have access to our financial advice. And then we serve about 100,000 families with uh, full-blown uh, personal financial planning. Yeah, I'm so curious to get into this so I can hear about the conversations that you're having with your clients and what you're hearing from them. But first, uh, just a little bit of background. I'm, I imagine most of our uh, subscribers have uh, are already familiar with your work, but uh, you're also a, a former academic. You taught personal finance at Georgetown. Um, you're a New York Times bestselling author. You've written something like 10 books about uh, personal finance. Uh, and of course, you've had a nationally syndicated radio show for 30 years. Yeah, it keeps us pretty busy. The, the foundation of our practice, when my wife Jean and I created it back 35 years ago, was financial education. We started our business because we got ripped off by a financial advisor. Uh, we were young, newly married, and like every newlywed, you know, wanted to buy a house and realized we didn't know anything about it, how to go about it. And so uh, on the referral of a friend, we went to a financial planner, uh, a CFP, he said, and uh, he proceeded to rip us off. He he told us to lie on our mortgage application, told us to commit a felony. <laughs> it, Ever a good it, sign. It, it infuriated us to such a degree. And by the way, he charged us 1500 bucks uh, for this plan. That was back in 1984. Uh, that was a lot of money back then, especially for newlyweds like us who didn't have a lot. And it just made us so angry. We said, you know what? We're going to learn how to figure this out ourselves. And then we're going to teach others what we've learned. And so financial education was the basis of our practice. And so we began our practice by doing seminars, PTA, uh, elementary school PTA groups. We would go in and do college planning seminars for those young parents. And then word spread. I got invited onto the radio. That ended up becoming what is now, I think, the longest running uh, national personal finance show. I'm in Talkers 100, the one of the top 100 most important uh, talk show hosts in the country. And that led to television. I've been hosting TV shows uh, for the last 25 years. I have a new PBS television special debuting June 1. Uh, and uh, along the way, I've written books, uh, 10 of them, as you've said. Uh, and um, I think I'm the best-selling 
personal finance uh, writer uh, among financial advisors. About a million copies of my books are in print in a whole bunch of languages around the world. Uh, and so our advice has always been consumer focused, uh, common sense, plain English, uh, fun, as entertaining as you can make it, because let's face it, it's an incredibly boring subject uh, that is actionable, that isn't filled with Wall Streetisms, but really focused on ordinary folks working hard, trying to get their kids into college, care for aging parents while preparing for their own retirement. And so, yeah, we engage in all forms of uh, media activities, uh, every channel available, because people learn in different ways. Some people like audio, some video, some like to read, some like to go to live events. So we provide our content every which way to enable people to get the information they need that's applicable to them in the format that they like to digest it. So, Rick, precisely to that point, obviously, in terms of this information, incredibly uh, anxious, uncertain time right now. What are you telling your clients? Well, we've been telling them for the past 35 years. You know, I've, I've gone through every crisis since the crash of 87. Uh, and you know, we went through the recession in 92, uh, the dot-com bubble, 9-11, of course, most recently the 08 credit crisis, uh, and lots of history before that, you know, our nation has been going through crises. We were founded on a crisis and we've seen economic devastation even before the U.S. was created. You know, of course, we saw the tulip bulb craze of 1636 and uh, the South Seas bubble. And, you know, we have a lot of history uh, showing us how bubbles get started, how pandemics exist, uh, crises and manias and panics and crashes. And we have a lot of history collectively. We also have a massive amount of history as to government responses to those crises and an equal amount of history regarding personal behavior, the emerging field of behavioral finance, which is a relatively new field, only about 20 years, 25 years old now. And we're huge students of behavioral finance. I've written a lot about that in my books and done a lot of live events uh, on that subject to help people understand not only what happens in a crisis and after a crisis, what you can expect to occur on a macro level from government perspectives, but also what you are likely to experience emotionally, psychologically, and how you need to use that information to help you avoid making big mistakes. So the advice we've been giving our clients is the same advice we've been giving for 35 years. And it falls, in this case, into really two major camps. Because what we're discovering is that this crisis is, on the one hand, the same as every other crisis we've ever seen. But on the other hand, it's vastly different. And it's different in one way. We all know what that is. This is a healthcare crisis in addition to being a financial crisis. Pretty much every other crisis we've experienced has been isolated to money. Uh, we, the causes have varied, sometimes wars and sometimes other things. But this one has the added layer of health. And that is what's making this so much more dicey and horrific for so many of our friends, family, and, and many of us personally. We, we've lost uh, 11 clients so far uh, to COVID-19. We've had several staff members and financial planners lose family members. Uh, so we're feeling this pain in ways that you that no one ever did in the crash of 87 or the 08 credit crisis. Uh, it's just our hearts are just torn from all of this. So the advice we're giving our clients is a two-step piece of advice, and it really comes in two very different pieces. The first step says what you should do, and the second step says what you must do if you can't do the first part. Mm. Here's the first part, what you should do. You need to ignore the fact that we are experiencing massive volatility. You need to ignore the fact that we are very likely going to experience significantly more declines than we have already. 
Uh, we know how tumultuous this environment has been. We know how difficult it is. The 35 million jobs lost so far, many are predicting that it will exceed 50 million before this is over. To put that into context, the worst we've ever had in this country was 1933, the depths of the, of the depression, at 25%. We're now facing a situation of as high as 35% in this crisis. So we're seeing the impact on American business, both big corporations and small small business owners, of absence of sales, uh, businesses shutting down, massive layoffs, people unable to pay their rent, uh, all kinds of financial devastation resulting in the stock market having a really difficult time, horrifically difficult, like we saw in 07, 08, when the market fell almost 60%. You need to ignore that, which is seems kind of crazy. How can you ignore it? Well, if you're a long-term investor, Meaning you, the money you've got invested, you weren't planning to use for 10 years, 20 years, you know, for your kid's college or your own retirement. Well, by the time you get to those dates, this crisis will be long gone. Just like 08 was 12 years ago, the dot-com bubble was 20 years ago, this too will be ancient history and won't adversely impact you 10 or 20 years from now. So if you can hang in there with your long-term goals, meaning you've got enough cash reserves, you've got enough external resources to be able to allow you to pay your bills, get through the crisis financially, you can have a long-term perspective, recognizing that the lower the prices go, the more the buying opportunity becomes. It becomes a bargain. Wall Street's on sale. People who invested through 08 got fabulously wealthy because the market tripled over the past 10 years. So this is a great opportunity for securing your wealth over the long term. But there's a big but there. Not everybody has the ability to do that. The massive job loss, the interruption of income, the inability to have enough cash reserves, the need for you to help out family members, even if you're okay, they may not be. And I don't just mean parents and children, but also siblings may be needing your help. You may not have enough cash to allow you to avoid dipping into your finances. And then there's the, the emotional side of it. Mm. You might freak out. You might panic as things get worse. And you might not have the stomach for the volatility, the market losses, seeing your account values fall month after month, like we saw over 16 months in 08. That could mean you need to sell and sell now. If you don't have the stomach for this roller coaster, get off it and get onto a merry-go-round. Roller coasters and merry-go-rounds both end up at the same place, but only one of them makes you throw up. So you need to understand your psychology, your emotional state, to understand if you're able to handle what our nation is going through and is likely to continue going through for some time to come. So Rick, let's talk, you touched on a lot of incredibly important points there. Let's talk on what your, a bit about what your outlook is uh, for, for example, U.S. equity markets. At uh, the time we're taping this, uh, U.S. equity markets are are down uh, roughly 14% from the all-time high uh, of February of 2020. And, um, you know, this does not seem like it reflects the full magnitude of all of the points that you just made, the, the incredible damage that this has done to the real economy, the damage that this has done to savings, the damage it's done to families. It just, it's hard to understand how that number, that minus 14%, is reflective of the kind of absolute devastation that we've witnessed. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm not a market timer. I am a believer in America. I'm a believer in the American capitalist system. I believe that you, if you bet against America, you're going to lose. And I believe very strongly that our nation, which has faced every imaginable crisis in its history and has succeeded in every one of them, will succeed in this one as well. And in the long run, this will 
pass, just like all the others before it have passed. And by the way, when we get through this crisis, don't get cocky. We're going to be facing the next crisis. I don't know what it is. I don't know when it'll occur, but we bounce from crisis to crisis in our country. And that's the way it is. It's the way it has always been and always will be. So we need to recognize that there are no good times versus bad times. There's bad times and preparing for bad times. And what we need to recognize that if you are a long-term investor, you do well financially, despite going through those crises. So yeah, I'm, I'm okay with what's coming. But having said that, to your point, if I were a market timer, I would say that investors today are in la-la land. How can you justify, given everything going on, that the stock market is only down 14%? In fact, it's not that the market is down 14 that is really shocking to me. is that the market has risen 20 percentage points from its 35% decline at the beginning of this crisis. How are investors justifying this major increase in stock prices, considering all the information that we have available to us about how long this crisis will last and how deep it's going to get economically? makes no sense to me. When we look at the P.E. ratio, the forward P.E. is trading around 21. Typically, it's around 15. The last time it was 21 was in the dot-com bubble. Mm. Well, what does that tell you? So to see that stock prices are as high as they are says to me that many investors are either in denial about what's happening or they're acting with Pollyanna. Uh, and I just find it hard to believe that stock prices aren't eventually going to catch up to the economic realities that our corporations are experiencing. Right. That was exactly what I was uh, curious to hear. And, and when you think about that, what's your outlook going forward? What do you think the timing of that is going to be? What do you think the magnitude of that retrenchment is going to look like? What are your overall thoughts about what that correction might be? I have no idea. I, I, in fact, I, nobody knows. Uh, and I'm not a market timer, so I wouldn't even begin to put a clock on this. I don't right. know how long this is going to last. I don't know how deep it's going to get. I don't know how quickly the recovery is going to be. All of it could be sh shocking and surprising in both directions, the V down and the V up. Some are talking about a U. Some are talking about a W. I've heard recently they're talking about a Nike swoosh. I mean, everybody's coming up with these <laughs> graphic images of what this is going to look like. Nobody knows. The only thing we do know is the following. It's going to get worse before it gets better, and then it's going to get better. And when it gets better, it's going to get really good because we know the crisis that this is. The economy was in fabulous condition, the best ever in American history. Our economy was sailing brilliantly until COVID came along. Well, as soon as COVID goes away, the economy will go back to where it was, so we will resume the fabulous environment. So it's going to be great, but in between here and there is going to be ugly. I don't know how ugly, and I don't know for how long, but I can tell you what it was like in prior crises. Go back to the 2008 credit crisis. Back then, the S&P 500 fell 57% over 16 months. If that were to happen today, in other words, just ask yourself, is this crisis equally as bad as that one? If you agree that it is as bad, and therefore the market will have the same reaction as it did then, mm. last time, a 57% decline, if that happens now, the Dow, which at its high was 29,500, would fall to 12.7. That's about half of where the market is right now. I'm not predicting that that's going to happen. I'm just saying if it was the same as what happened in the past. Yeah. Will you know, it fall that much? Will it fall less? Will it fall more? How long will that last? I don't know. 
You know, it's so it's so interesting. You raise so many interesting points. I guess one of the questions that I have uh, is that when you think about this, I wonder if even worse and better is the is a narrow is too narrow a framework to even think about this within. You know, for example, obviously that was a banking crisis. It was a different type of uh, problem. We had problems with credit creation, um, but this is something that seems different. You know, when I walk down the street here. Uh, in New York City, and I see uh, stores that I shopped at, cafes that I've had coffee at, physically boarded up. I wonder, is it possible that this recovery can be uh, extended or decelerated because of the amount of damage done to the real economy as opposed to the financial economy that we saw last time? I don't know, and I don't care. And and here's why, because you may be right, uh, Ash. I mean, who knows? Everybody has an opinion and a conjecture. A lot of smart people are studying this data. I talk with a lot of them frequently. Everybody's brilliant, and nobody knows for sure what's going to happen. So you may well be right, but here's the point. It doesn't matter. If you are a long-term investor, I'm sure you'll agree with me, no matter how bad it gets, it'll eventually get better. We'll get through this. Now, that existing small business owner may not individually recover. Their business may close, never to reopen, but they'll be replaced by their successor. Someone who worked for them will then open the business in the same spot they used to operate in. Instead of working in the place, they'll own the place. That business owner may lose the restaurant. They'll just open another restaurant somewhere else with new loans or equity to get that going. So we will emerge from this crisis. How long will it be before that happens? What will that reemergence look like? I don't know, but I don't care as long as it happens and it happens within my timetable, meaning I'm a long-term investor with a 10 or 20 year horizon, it'll work out just fine. The problem is, do I have that time horizon? Right. And do I have the emotional capacity to sustain the tumultuous environment between now and then? Not everybody has that long-term time horizon. You've got retirees, people who are living right now on their investment income, dependent on their asset values to be able to generate the income they need, dependent on the bonds to pay the interest necessary for them to pay their bills. They don't have the luxury of looking 10 or 20 or 30 years out. And then you've got folks who are dealing with financial issues within their families, people who are suddenly out of work and have lost their income, family members who need financial help. We had 110 million Americans enter this crisis in credit card debt. That was before the crisis even began. Two years ago, the Federal Reserve said 40% of U.S. households didn't even have 400 bucks that they could put together to pay an unexpected bill. And that was before all these people lost their jobs. The Fed now says 40% of all the job losses are occurring in households that were earning under 40 grand a year. These are people who were living precariously in the first place, and it didn't take much to toss them into financial jeopardy. So some folks don't have the luxury of saying, I'll wait this out. Others don't have the financial or the emotional wherewithal to be able to say that. And those are the folks who need to reevaluate their investment strategy because they might be engaging in a strategy they cannot tolerate and will therefore fail them. I'm not worried about the markets. I'm worried about you. Right. You know, I'm, I'm one of the questions that I'm so eager to ask you, you have over a million clients, and I'm curious to hear what you're hearing from them? Well, as you can imagine, a lot of concern and anxiety. Um, uh, on the one hand, I, I would say our clients fall into two camps. A great many are very concerned uh, because they're looking at their account statements, they're seeing their asset values fall, they are looking at interest rates decline to dramatically low levels like we've never seen in our lives, and that means the income they're earning on their fixed income is lower than ever before. They're fearful of inflation rates, uh, and so there's a lot of concern uh, 
am I going to be okay? That's that's the bottom line question that people are asking. Am I going to be okay? On the other hand, we have a lot of clients because we've been doing this for 35 years and we've got clients who've been with us 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, they've been through this many times and they are being much more cavalier in a healthy way. They're saying, I've been there, done that. I mean, I panicked in 07. I got really upset in 92. I freaked out in, in 2001 and it all worked out just fine. So will this. I've learned through my personal experience that if I just hang in there, I turn off the news, I stop looking at my account values, in the end, it'll be fine. And so a lot of our clients are literally taking this in stride and good for them, they're able to do it. But some folks who have less experience, either because they haven't been our clients for as long or they're not old enough to remember those past crises, they weren't invested back then, or they had bad investment advice from where they were before they joined us, they're a little uh, less comfortable, less certain of themselves because they have less financial experience and less financial education. Yeah. Those are the ones we're spending most of our time with. Yeah. And what are you telling them? Everything I've just said to you, that we're evaluating very carefully their personal circumstances. How secure is their job? How likely is it that they're going to be able to keep their job? Uh, might they experience a furlough? Might they be experience a pay cut? Might they experience a complete layoff? Uh, and if that were to happen, what would that do to their personal finances, their ability to pay their bills? How much do they have in cash reserves? Let's go beyond them and look at their parents, their children, and their siblings, because nobody is turning family away in this environment. And if your family needs help and you've got money, you're going to help them. So to what degree can you help and what impact might that have on your financial stability and security? And with all of that taken into consideration, now we can evaluate the investment strategy to see and confirm if the advice we gave you pre-COVID remains valid now during COVID. And for some clients, we're changing the advice, quite frankly, mm -hmm. and we're setting their portfolios far more conservative than before. Other clients, we're leaving them exactly as is. And for some, actually getting more aggressive as they recognize that they've got, they're plenty flush with cash, they're in great financial shape, and they regard this as a buying opportunity. And their attitude is, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. So it is always down to the individual client and their individual circumstances and attitudes as well. Yeah, especially if they have longer time horizons, right? They have the opportunity to get more aggressive. Only if you have a set of circumstances that will get you through that. We're also devoting an equal amount of energy and attention to non investment items. I mean, sure, people tend to turn to us and all their financial advisors for investment advice. That's what you typically think of when you think of a financial advisor, but we do so much more than just investments for our clients. We're giving our clients uh, a very extensive examination over their mortgage, their insurance, their automobiles. Uh, we're looking at their college for their high school students and their uh, Students who are returning to college, should they be doing that if the college is going to be online in the fall? Well, we're looking at their estate plan to make sure that their wills and trusts uh, are up to date, that they have current powers of attorney and medical directives, and that their beneficiary designations are correct. In other words, we can't control what happens in the stock market, but we certainly can control the investment behaviors you engage in and the personal finance strategies you operate to help you minimize the damage and take advantage of opportunities that exist, like refinancing at today's low interest rates, getting rid of auto insurance for a car that's sitting in the garage you're not driving during the COVID when everybody's sheltering in place. Why are you paying for auto insurance on a car you're not driving? So there are unique ways that we can help our clients save money and make money that we never would have thought of just three months ago. So now that we've covered uh, a bit about what the crisis is like and individual responses, when you look out at the response 
uh, from the federal government, from the Fed, from congressional uh, fiscal stimulus. What are your thoughts there? The government's not doing nearly enough and not acting nearly fast enough. Uh, they've uh, already come up with $3 trillion. Uh, there is a bill in uh, Congress for an, uh, another $3 trillion that the Republicans hate. Uh, and if, they're not going to have a choice. They're going to have to provide much more stimulus. My calculations are between 6 and $8 trillion will ultimately be needed. But I've been talking with someone else in New York who say that the figure is closer to 10 to $15 trillion. Uh, I don't know where the numbers are going to lay out, but the $3 trillion so far clearly not enough. And it's obvious why. I mean, the government sent to everybody 1200 bucks plus 500 per child under 16, under 17. Well, the average U.S. income in this country is $44,000. Net of tax, about three grand a month. A one-time check of 1200 bucks, what is that supposed to accomplish for yeah. a crisis that's lasting at least through the rest of this year and probably throughout 2021? A one-time check of 1200 bucks isn't going to accomplish anything. The government's not going to have any choice but to provide substantially more stimulus, especially the fact that they so far haven't provided stimulus to the higher education system, which is under massive financial attack right now, to states and municipalities and the national pensions that are occurring around the country between unions, municipal, state, and private uh, corporate pension programs that are $4 trillion underfunded going into the crisis, Social Security, where the trust fund is going to be depleted by 2029, creating a 25% cut in pension and, and retirement benefits for America's retirees over the next nine years. We've got massive crises on our hands for big companies, small business owners who employ three-fourths of all Americans. The vast majority of Americans who don't own a home or have no home equity if they do have no savings, no investments, no money set aside, who have now just lost their jobs. The government is going to have no choice but to deal with this by providing far more stimulus than they have so far. And the dilly-dallying that's going on in Capitol Hill is simply making it worse. So they're going to have no choice but to act, and the sooner they do, the better. Now, I'm not liking any of what I just said. I mean, I'm a financial guy. I don't like the government going into debt. I don't like the fact that we're going to be providing handouts to Americans. I don't like the fact that we're going to be dramatically increasing, as a result, taxes and inflation rates to deal with all of this. But we've got a burning house right now. And when you've got a burning house, there are only two things that matter. Get everybody out safely and extinguish the flames. Yeah. That's it. Everything else has to wait. Now, we can argue over what caused this fire you know, and blame the slob who was smoking in bed. Well, we'll, we'll get to that later. And we can worry about the water damage from the fire hoses. We're, we'll worry about that later. We don't have the luxury of dealing with those subjects today. We've got to deal with this burning house. There are tens of millions of American households who don't have any money and therefore can't buy food. We've got to deal with this. And the yeah. Congress is the backstop for this issue. They need to act. They need to act now. You know, it's interesting for those of us who've been following markets uh, for some time, this reminds me of that period where we had the, uh, I think it was called the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008. Uh, obviously, this was proposed by the Bush administration. And the first time it was voted on, uh, it was voted down. And, uh, you know, those of us who remember watching uh, watching uh, financial television that day, the stock market promptly sold off and they came back a couple days later and it worked. And the interesting thing in the story you were suggesting about the political component to this is, you know, we had a Republican in the White House 
uh, and we had Democrats voting for the bill uh, in the House uh, and uh, Republicans who withheld support for the reason that the bill didn't pass. So it is this very unusual sort of politics making strange bedfellows. You have an administration who's focusing, uh, you know, presumably on putting out the fire, as you suggest. Uh, and then you have a, a Congress, maybe Republican Congress people who are voting against the bill more for ideological reasons. Well, it's compounded by the fact that it's an election year. So everybody is recognizing they're going to be held accountable in November for their behavior today. So the vote they take today is going to be it's going to hit them at home uh, on election day. So that's all part of it as well. And some, let's face it, they love to, ex you know, don't let it, who said it, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. Uh, so there, there are Rough some back. who are, who are exploiting this crisis to engage in uh, their political agenda. So, Hey, since the government's going to be spending trillions of dollars anyway, let's throw a couple hundred billion over here because I, that's one of my philosophical beliefs, even though that isn't necessarily related to the crisis. You also have others who are going to engage in fraud and abuse, people who are going to be getting money from the government who frankly don't need it, don't deserve it, uh, and who are go aren't going to use it that in a manner that actually helps the country the way that it's intended. Those are inevitables. Pork and fraud are inevitable byproducts, distasteful as they are, to a massive scenario like this. You can't withhold the support and the funds merely because that stuff makes you hold your nose. You got to hold your nose while you write the check. There's just That's just all there is to it. Yeah, and are you taking into account what you think in terms of the trajectory of a recovery, uh, taking into account the, this massive uh, stimulus on both on the monetary side as well as on the fiscal side? Not at all. I couldn't care less. Um, I got a burning house. And yes, those are uh, those are really big concerns. What is it going to mean for the federal deficit? What will it mean for the national debt? What will it therefore mean for interest rates and inflation rates? These are all scary questions. Uh, our heads will explode if we try to deal with those first. In other words, we're in a leaky rowboat, right? We're sinking. And you're worried about the rust. We'll get to the rust later. We got to plug the hole in the boat. Otherwise, the rust won't matter. We'll all drown. So one crisis at a time, please. Let's not let's not try to resolve more than we can handle at, a, at any given moment. Yeah, Rick, what else are you thinking about right now? Isn't this enough? <laughs> uh, uh, we, we have plenty on our hands. And oh, by the way, I haven't said a thing about health. I haven't said a thing about the need for us all to remain healthy, not get sick. If we do get sick, minimize our symptoms. If our symptoms get severe, our ability to get the health care that we need from hospitals and avoiding the ultimate crisis, death. And what that means, not just for the deceased, but their, for their surviving family members. We haven't even talked about any of that. And we have to recognize that as we're busy fighting the financial and personal finance elements of this, we've got a healthcare crisis on our hands of unprecedented magnitude, something we haven't seen since the Spanish flu a hundred years ago. And so we have an awful lot on our plates and I am loath to try to add any more to it. Another thing that you and I share an interest in, and uh, frankly, a potential bright spot in all of this, uh, has been cryptocurrency. Um, what are your thoughts right now about Bitcoin and how that plays into the current crisis? Well, Bitcoin is a huge beneficiary. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, digital assets. I created the RAA Digital Assets Council, which is an organization focused on teaching financial advisors about digital assets, particularly 
Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the other uh, crypto coins, as well as the blockchain, because it's the blockchain technology that really is what matters here, not yeah. merely digital assets. Bitcoin was the number one performing asset class of 2019. It was up over 100%. It is the best performing asset class of 2020. Uh, it has grown more than any other asset. Uh, and I am a very big believer that Bitcoin should be considered uh, by consumers uh, and investors as something to add to their portfolios. Not much, you know, 1% is plenty. Uh, of an asset allocation. Bitcoin uh, is extraordinarily volatile. There is no certainty it will survive. Uh, it could easily be eliminated either by governments who don't like it or competitors who come up with a better mousetrap and render Bitcoin yeah. obsolete. You know, everybody loved Atari, but I don't think anybody's playing Atari anymore. We all had our Betamax, but what happened to that? So, uh, and, and does anybody remember Lotus 123? Um, it's all about Microsoft Excel these days. So just because Bitcoin is the market leader and looking really fabulous, anybody who invests in Bitcoin needs to recognize they could lose it all. So what I've been consistently telling folks is that before you invest in Bitcoin, number one, learn the technology, understand what it is you're talking about. Number two, if you're going to invest no more than 1% of the portfolio, you don't need to do a lot. Three, recognize that it's an extraordinarily volatile asset. Uh, and number four, you're going to continue to see this volatility for years, even decades. And number five, be prepared to lose 100% of what you invest because that very well may happen. So for a lot of folks, the, it may be premature for them to invest in uh, Bitcoin. Many financial advisors, including our own firm here at Edelman Financial Engines, we're not recommending Bitcoin to our clients for all the reasons I just cited. We're right. waiting for an ETF to be uh, made available by the SEC that will allow investors to invest in Bitcoin via a security, similarly to the way many consumers never invested in gold until there was a gold ETF. Yeah. Uh, so we're waiting and watching from uh, a firm-based perspective, which I think is appropriate. Uh, but ordinary consumers should recognize Bitcoin is, I don't believe, is going away and digital assets are here to stay. Uh, and it's going to be accelerated by this crisis. And there's one fundamental reason why digital currency and digital assets are going to be the norm sooner than before the crisis came about. There's one simple reason for it. One of the filthiest things we ever touch is hmm. money. The dollar bills in your pocket are filled with bacteria. Just imagine all the hands that your money goes yeah. encounters. Why on earth are you touching that money when we are afraid to go anywhere near another person? So instead of using printed currency, let's use digital currency. And I think that this crisis is going to accelerate the use of digital currencies that governments will, will uh, provide or make available or allow to uh, help deal with it from a healthcare perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my mother used to always mock me for using Apple Pay when I would go in the store. She said, it's five bucks. Give the cashier the five. And now she's asking me how to set it up. So I think you're right. I think there is going to be that uh, great demand for it. It's interesting to me also that due to some of the challenges with custodying digital assets, the risk of losing, for example, uh, a key uh, that would uh, effectively result in forfeiting the entire investment, that you guys are thinking about investing through vehicles like ETFs as they become available. Yeah, but even there, you know, th that just takes one step further, the issue of custody. And let me make sure everybody knows what we're talking about. You know, when you have a dollar in your pocket, you're the custodian. You have custody of your money. We also know that if you drop your dollar out of your pocket onto the street, 
someone else comes along and picks it up, they now have custody of your dollar. So that's the issue of physically losing your money. And when you're dealing with it digitally, you have an online service that is serving as your custodian. They have your digital wallet. They have your Bitcoin or other digital assets. And you have to hope that they don't lose the digital wallet, that their system doesn't go down, their servers don't crash, that they don't get hacked and somebody steals the digital coins. This issue of custody is one of the SEC's biggest concerns about Bitcoin, is the risk that a custodian might end up going broke or getting hacked. Now, this is an issue the SEC has been dealing with for for as long as the SEC has been in existence, over 100 years. When you own a stock or a bond, you own it at Merrill Lynch or... TD Ameritrade or Charles Schwab or E-Trade or who knows where, but you're buying stocks and bonds with a custodian and they have your physical certificates. You don't have shares of IBM sitting in your drawer at home. You're doing it online. So this custody issue is extraordinarily important. It's the foundation. We all have fundamental confidence that our custodian is doing a good job, that our assets placed in that custodian are legit available to us at any time, won't get stolen, won't get hacked, won't get lost. And the SEC wants to make sure that that very same solid structure is equally applicable to digital coins like Bitcoin. The SEC is not yet convinced. I am, uh, in my research and uh, work with these organizations, I, I think that that concern used to be legitimate, but I think we've overcome it technologically. There are other issues that remain, such as volatility, uh, and legitimacy of pricing. To touch on the point that you just made about custody, paradoxically, that's one of the uh, selling points for the advocates, the people who are most passionate about it, is the idea that you can truly self-custody your own assets by maintaining control of the private key. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is the risk, right? So if you have the private key and it gets lost, you have literally nothing, right? You have no claim on that asset at all. It's for like having for, money in a safe and you lose the combination, right. right? Right, which is also appealing to some people, right? The idea of being able to physically have money in your own safe. It's the same thing when you buy shares of Microsoft. You know, Are you going to let your broker hold on to your shares or are you going to demand that they send you the certificate so you can put the certificate in your safe, in your yeah. safe deposit box? Well, there's pro and con. You know, what happens if the brokerage firm collapses, but what happens if your house burns down and the document burns up with it? So there's no safe place to hide. We are all operating under one fundamental word in our economy. The entire economy is based on a single word, confidence. We have confidence that the system works. And that's the SEC's fundamental job is maintaining investor confidence because without confidence, nobody's gonna be willing to do anything. So we were willing to put money in the bank because we have confidence that the money will be there. Back you know, in the 1800s when you had bank robbers out west and they ran in, stole the money out of the bank, there was no FDIC. Your money was gone, it was stolen by a robber. You were broke. Well. The government, to respond to that, created FDIC. Don't worry if your bank gets robbed. FDIC will backstop you up to a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, so we have systems in place to help create confidence for consumers. And the question we have now in this economic crisis, how confident will consumers remain about their and therefore what is their willingness to continue investing in and owning stocks, bonds, and even currency? Yeah. One quick question to get back to the digital assets. Uh, You've been thinking about Bitcoin and blockchain and Ethereum. When you think about those technologies, 
What do you think the greatest potential is? Is it a, is it a form of digital gold, a store of value that can be off-grid that is less correlated with other assets? Or is it something that potentially has other uses, a payment protocol, for example, uh, or other some of the more abstract uses of the technology? When you think about that asset, what are you looking at and what are you most enthusiastic about? All the above. It is all incredibly exciting. You know, one of the most profound comments ever made to me by a technologist that I spoke to, he, he said, let me put it to you this way, Rick. He said, we are the four most impactful technological innovations in human history. He said, here they are, fire, the wheel, the internet, and the blockchain. Mm. That was like mind-blowing when you put it in that context. The blockchain is going to have the most fundamental impact on commerce ever in human history. And it means everything you've just said is true. Yes, there will be digital assets that operate like gold, that have a store of value. You will have digital assets that operate like a currency, like the US dollar does, that allows you to transmit money from one place and one person to another. You're going to have the ability to transmit and to transact assets. We're going to be able to digitize everything. We all buy shares of Amazon, but you, you can't afford to buy the whole company, but you can buy one sliver of it called one share. Well, why can't we do that with the GM building in New York? Why can't I do that to the Empire State Building? Why yeah. can't I buy a tiny piece of real estate? And we're already doing that digitally. We're doing it with rare art. We're doing it with rare cars, with rare wines. We're doing it with stamps and coins. We can digitize everything. We have professional athletes that have digitized their incomes and their contracts. You yeah. can actually invest in your favorite recording artist or athlete and enjoy a equity ownership of their career. We can digitize everything. It is all getting extraordinarily exciting, yeah. new and different opportunities that never before existed. Yeah, and we can do it cheaper, faster, and easier than we ever could before. I mean, and safer ago. with greater transparency and greater safety as well. Rick, we've covered a lot of ground here today, um, a lot of interesting uh, conversation. What are your final thoughts as you look back? I guess my final message is really aimed at financial advisors rather than their clients uh, and investors directly. Financial advisors pride themselves on being really good at what they do. And knowing thousands of them, yeah, most advisors are really good at what they do. We need to be cautious as advisors not to engage in a, a financial uh, behavioral finance mistake of our own called anchoring, meaning I've given my client such advice for such a period of time, I need to be willing to acknowledge that perhaps the advice I gave my client is no longer valid in a COVID world. And before my client can reevaluate their circumstances, I have to be willing to reevaluate the advice I gave my client. I cannot continue to give my client the advice I gave them in the past merely because it's the advice I gave them in the past. And even though I might need to say to my client something new and different, I need to be willing to say something new and different if that is what is in my client's best interests. So we need to ditch ourselves of the ball and chain that is anchoring many of us and acknowledge that this situation is unprecedented and requires for some clients an unprecedented change of advice. So Rick, if you have a few more minutes to uh, join us, I'd like to ask you a series of questions that we call the intersection, which is where we ask some more personal questions, just to get a broader sense of your view of the world. Happy to. Great, so first question, is there one person living or dead that you'd like to interview more than anyone else? Oh, without, question, that's Moses. Uh, the Bible is filled with a large number of characters who uh, 
dealt with uh, their messages from the Lord, but it is only Moses who not only actually had an active dialogue with God, he challenged God. He disagreed with God, ultimately had you know, the ultimate punishment for it, wasn't allowed into the promised land. But someone who's willing to have an argument with God, that's a guy I've got to meet. <laughs> Very well said. Uh, what are the books uh, or book that's changed your life or changed the way you see the world most uh, and why? Well, there's a lot, of course. I mean, there's the you know the the standard, of course, everything written by Anne Rand. Um, there's um, uh, I've read uh, growing up a lot of uh, dystopian books, uh, Sinclair Lewis uh, and uh, Aldous Huxley, and uh, the list goes on and on and on. I guess you could probably put Rand in that category too. Uh, and and the the title that comes to mind these days is the title "It Can't Happen Here." Uh, well, hello, it looks like it is. Um, so, um, a lot of those, uh, and, uh, I, I've read thousands of, uh, books on personal finance and, and the entire category, uh, two in particular of manias, uh, and crashes looking at history medicine. You know, we, we, we repeat history cause we fail to learn from it. So learning about prior crashes, uh, and panics and manias, uh, is extremely helpful as is the study of behavioral finance. Why do we make the decisions we make? We like to brag that we're smarter than every other animal on the planet, I'm not convinced that we necessarily are because we don't act intellectually. We act emotionally. And yeah. understanding behavioral finance is uh, extraordinarily insightful. So all of those uh, uh, I find to have been very, very helpful. Isn't it incredible that the field of behavioral finance barely existed when we first got into this business? Uh, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I, I've talked with Harry Markowitz a lot, and, and Harry likes to, uh, he's a Nobel Prize winning uh, yes. uh, economist uh, who created the, the field of uh, modern uh, portfolio theory. Uh, and he says that he is actually uh, the grandfather of behavioral finance. Back in 1953, he showed me his paper on this. He actually wrote the very first paper back in 53 uh, that asked the question about investor decision-making and laid the foundation for behavioral finance. It wasn't another 20 years before Tversky and Kahneman really launched it into a full-blown science where they ended up winning the Nobel Prize for that work. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, you're right. It's fascinating how economists for centuries never took into consideration human attitude and behavior, when today it seems so unbelievably common and common sense that we behave emotionally. And so it's really funny that even today, many people do not realize that their decision-making is emotional, not intellectual. Yeah, uh, economics is not physics, and that's where the models were based. It's really fascinating. So as a leader in your field, I'm curious, how do you stay engaged? Uh, how do you stay up to date? And what do you look to to find sources that challenge your current opinions? I read uh, everything I can uh, in our in the field, the investment advisory community, lots of conferences. Uh, I talk with lots of folks in the industry, uh, both the individual advisors uh, throughout the country, uh, as well as corporate executives and the private equity firms that are providing funding to these corporations, the consultants and, and consulting firms that serve this industry. Uh, so I, I've uh, got my 
pulse on a lot of that stuff, plus uh, the macroeconomic folks and a lot of policymakers in Washington, D.C., uh, and a lot of experts in other related fields. Uh, I'm constantly trying to get around all these folks. One of the big areas I'm dealing with is the subject of aging. So I'm on the advisory board at Stanford's uh, Center on Longevity and the Milken Institute's uh, Institute on Aging, uh, and I've done work with uh, MIT's Age Lab as well to get around these experts who are looking very forward as to where our nation is headed from a demographic perspective with people living longer than ever and the boomers growing in size, the population pyramid shifting from a pyramid to a box. Uh, you know, historically, the bulk of the population was at the base. The younger you are, the more of you there were. Uh, older people tended to die. That's not really true anymore. Older people, instead of dying, are living longer. My mom's 92. So we have as many people at the top of the pyramid as at the bottom now. Huge public policy implications of that regarding everything from pensions and social security to housing and uh, products and services, um, everything affecting Hollywood and entertainment, it goes on and on and on. So I spent a lot of time dealing with a lot of this. And fortunately, my perch at Edelman Financial Engines allows me to do that. I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day activities of the business anymore. We have a fabulous CEO and Larry Raffone and a great uh, executive team. Uh, and so they're able to run the company on a daily basis, it allows me to step back stare out the window a lot and just try to figure out where are we, where are we going, not only for our firm and for our clients, but for the industry and the nation as a whole. And that's what allow, has allowed me to do some uh, thought leadership in our industry. My most recent book, The Truth About Your Future, is all about thought leadership of where we are headed um, regarding exponential technologies. Uh, we talked about one of them, uh, Bitcoin and the blockchain, uh, but there are so many others, uh, 3D printing, nanotechnology, biotech, bioinformatics, uh, big data, uh, fintech, the list goes on and on. Uh, and these are going to have tremendous, uh, unprecedented uh, impacts on every aspect of life on our planet. And what does that mean for your personal finances and your investment strategy? So I spend as much time as I can talking with a whole lot of others and doing one thing you said that's really important, talking with people whose views I don't agree with. Yeah. Too often I'm discovering in society these days, we uh, engage in what we know now call confirmation bias. We only talk to people who agree with us and we dismiss anything anyone else has to say. That's just not an effective approach for knowledge and learning. You've got to learn from people who have a point of view that is completely different from your own. It's the only way for you to learn and develop and to consider if your own thought process is effective. One of my favorite quotes is from Abraham Lincoln, who said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The importance of diverse sources simply can't be overstated and, and, very, and very well said. Some of our guests have a specific breakthrough or tipping point in their life that they can trace uh, some of their success to. Do you have a moment that you think back to in your life that would uh, fulfill that criteria? Well, you know, it's it's hard to specifically pinpoint one. I, I remember that uh, a line from uh, one of the Beatles biographers said that they spent five years becoming an overnight success. Hmm, right. Uh, and it was very similar for Gene and me. Uh, we, you know, just had our heads down, focused on our business, trying to grow, trying to serve clients, trying to find clients. And, uh, Suddenly, one day, uh, due to the hard work we were engaged in, I was invited onto the radio. And that initial radio interview led, a couple of years later, to being offered to host my own show. Yeah. So I guess it would be that. Um, but 
there was no, you know, it wasn't one day you wake up and, you know, there's a light bulb. It, it really just represents years and even decades, day in, day out of extraordinary levels of hard work and focus. And then you turn around one day and you're like, oh, wow, look what I've built. Uh, I, you know, didn't even realize it as it was happening. And uh, all of a sudden, here we are. I remember the biggest shock one day was when um, we'd read uh, Inc. Magazine. Uh, they published the Inc. 500 every year. These are the 500 fastest growing privately owned companies in America. The opposite of the S&P 500, which is the 500 biggest public companies. Right. Inc. 500 are private companies. And they ranked us number 69 on the Inc. 500. And we had no idea that what we were doing was that we were growing so fast and that we were growing to the point where we were among the fastest growing companies in America. It was shocking. That was absolutely shocking for us to see that. And that's when it realized we're doing something here that is that is special, that is different. Finally, what view do you hold that would be most controversial uh, among your peers in the business? Well, I think these days uh, I'm well known within the advisory community that there isn't too much that I could say that would shock many folks, but I think I'm best known for the fact that I don't particularly like the financial services industry. Uh, I don't like Wall Street. Uh, we all love to hate banks and insurance companies, credit card companies and brokerage firms. The reputation uh, that our industry has is extraordinarily bad and rightfully so. We are consistently ranked among the least trusted industries in America, only slightly ahead of car mechanics and uh, Congress. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it's a well-deserved reputation. Our industry is well-known for its abusive sales practices on deceptive and misleading sales pitches, on fees and expenses that are either not disclosed, not prominently disclosed, or assessed in a subversive, inappropriate way that serves the company that is selling that product or service and not the consumer who's the uh, purchaser of that service. Uh, and that is the basis on which Gene and I built our business uh, as a, an oasis to help consumers escape that environment uh, rather than be subjected to it. Uh, I remember talking with a really good friend of mine who had amassed a huge amount of frequent flyer miles on an airline. He lives in a, a small community that only has uh, a small airport and only one airline flies regularly from it. So that's the airline he uses all the time. And, and I said, um, you must love that airline. You use it all the time. And he said, I'm not their customer. I'm their hostage. Hmm. He recognized that he didn't have a choice but to do business with them. And likewise, Americans have no choice but to do business with the financial services industry. We have to use banks and credit cards, and we have to buy insurance, and we need to buy stocks and bonds and mutual funds from brokerage firms where they're available. That doesn't mean we like these organizations. It doesn't mean we trust them, and it doesn't mean that we want to use them. We don't have a choice. Too many Americans are hostage to the financial services industry. And uh, my goal, my mission has been to provide an opportunity for consumers to find a way that they can actually enjoy the organization that they're working with in the financial field, as opposed to finding themselves forced into doing so. Uh, and my challenge to our industry is to alter their sales practices, their corporate policies, and their behaviors so that they too can be the kind of an organization that consumers would choose to flock to. We should be more like Amazon, Disney, Starbucks, and uh, Ritz-Carlton, and much less 
like those that we are seeing in headlines all today because of the latest government investigation and scandal. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.